with a view to the blessing of God, let's uh, turn to the second passage that we read in the Gospel as it's given by Luke <coughs> in chapter 7. And uh, the events that take place there in the house of Simon <coughs> Events which close with the Lord uh, speaking these precious words to the woman at the very end of the chapter in verse 50 where he says to her that your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now on Thursday night at the prayer meeting I was speaking about uh, the gospel of Christ being a fragrance I love life to life or of death to death and I, I made mention of the alabaster flask of precious perfume of course when we think of the alabaster flask of perfume our minds usually go straight away to Mary of Bethany who anointed uh, the Lord's body uh, from head to foot just before his death and his burial and I suppose that we're very prone to forget that there was another woman uh, with another alabaster flask who also anointed the Lord Jesus Christ. Not this time before his uh, death and burial and not in Bethany either, but in Capernaum where we saw uh, the Lord preach so often and performed so many miracles. And uh, this woman I don't think is as well known and I'd like with the Lord's help to look at her uh, this morning with you and especially her faith because after all in the words of our text it is her faith that the Lord draws special attention to. Now there's no doubt that he also highlights her love and in fact it's her love that probably strikes ourselves the most uh, but it's interesting that the last words that he says to her have to do with her faith. And he stresses the fact that it's actually her faith that has saved you. So she's to take that to heart and she's to keep it in mind as she leaves the house that evening. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And as we look at the woman, we'll see the relationship, I hope, between her love and her faith. But there's no doubt that the priority is given here to faith. So let's see what the Lord has to say to us in connection with this woman. Now, as I mentioned uh, just before the reading, and as the reading itself tells us, these events take place at a meal in the home of a man called Simon, who is a Pharisee. Now that may in itself be a surprise to you to find Christ eating in the home of a Pharisee. But I think it's important to remember that the Pharisees were not always hostile to Christ. In fact, they took a considerable time to reject him. The Pharisees were the upholders, as they saw it, of the full word of God, and of the law of Moses in its entirety. 
And their great enemies were the Sadducees, who were really the liberal theologians of the day. They had cut away large parts of the Old Testament. They didn't believe in things like angels or uh, various other things too. They were very liberal in their beliefs and tendencies. And when the Lord Jesus, and indeed John the Baptist before him, when they appeared, the Pharisees identified with them and understood them to be of themselves, uh, real believers in God, and real upholders of the Word of God. It took a long time for the rupture to come between the Pharisees and Christ, and of course what brought that rupture on was when both Christ and John the Baptist made plain that they had need to repent too, that their birth, their circumcision, their outward upright life, at least in one aspect of it, that none of that was enough for them to enter into the kingdom of God. That in fact, they needed, just like a woman like this, to come to faith in Christ. That was offensive to them, and the rejection just grew and grew until the events of the crucifixion. But even as in chapter 14, you find Christ at another feast, in another Pharisee's house. But the tensions, of course, are developing. So here he is at the feast. And as they gather at the feast and circle around the large table that the Pharisee would have, this woman slips in and remarkably she's able to make her way behind where Christ himself sits. Now you remember that the custom was to recline at tables. So the Lord's own feet are behind him, just as everyone's feet are behind him. There's a crowd in the house, but she just makes her way forward and stations herself behind the Lord's feet. Now it's quite clear from the passage that this woman is well known in Capernaum. In fact, it would be more fair to say that she was notorious in Capernaum. There were several women in the house, not least the woman who always accompanied Christ, and chapter 8 mentions some of them. If you just look at the opening verses of chapter 8, we're reminded there that there were certain women who went around in the company of Christ and the apostles. At the, well, just at the very beginning of chapter 8, it came to pass that he went through every city and village, preaching and bringing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God, and the twelve were with him, and certain women. Now they obviously looked after their material needs. They had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, out of whom had come seven demons. Joanna, who was the wife of Herod's steward, a man called Chusa. Now, he would be very high up. She would have considerable wealth herself. And Susanna, and many others who provided for him from their substance. Now, they would have noticed this woman coming in and stationing herself behind the feet of Christ, but they wouldn't have considered it their remit to take anything really to do with that in the house of someone else, especially in the house of someone as distinguished as this. As far as the local people are concerned, it's quite obvious that they didn't recognize at the beginning who this woman was. There's no doubt once she began to do what she began to do that they would recognize her, but 
immediately they didn't recognize her. She just slipped in and took her place, no one knowing. I think it's worth bearing in mind in connection with that, that for reasons which we'll see in a minute, this woman looked different from the way that she used to look in the town anyway. Because grace changes people. Grace changes everything about people. It changes their approach to everything, even their appearance, their clothing, the way they present themselves to other people. Because they, they don't want to communicate certain messages anymore, they want to communicate other messages. Um, people say to you sometimes that the Lord doesn't care about the outward person. Well, who says that? The Lord cares about all, all every aspect of her being, outward and inward. He always has. And it's no surprise in that respect that they didn't recognize the woman who slipped in. Now, we don't know too much about her. The fact is that we know that she was known in the city for all the wrong reasons. As Simon says in his own heart, as he's talking to himself, he says in verse... Um, well, Luke tells us, of course, that she is a sinner... And in verse 39, Simon speaks to himself and says, This man, that's Christ, if he were a prophet, would know who and what kind of woman this is who is touching him. For she is a sinner. And Luke calls her by the same name in verse 37. Behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner. Now that is just a recognized term for what would be called now a woman of the night in what people sometimes call the world's oldest profession, which of course it isn't, but you know what I am speaking about. And she's the one who comes to the feast, perhaps the last person you would expect at the feast that night. But the fact is that she is carrying a flask of alabaster ointment. Now, the alabaster ointment, as I've mentioned before in another context, is very expensive, extremely so. It's a perfume that came from the Himalayas in India, and it was so expensive that it was usually in sealed bottles, uh, just to preserve its authenticity, so that you knew when you were buying it, you were buying the real thing. In today's currency, it's worth thousands of pounds. Now, this woman had a flask. That tells us two things. First of all, that she obviously did very well in the profession that she was in. Of course, what does it profit a man or a woman to gain the world and to lose their soul? There's no doubt that she was losing her soul in her profession. And as the book of Proverbs tells us, she is also instrumental in other people losing their souls. It's sometimes very easy to maybe approach this kind of thing from such a sympathetic point of view in connection to the woman concerned that she's put, been put into it by several factors and reasons and so on. It's so easy to take that approach that you forget the sinfulness of the approach itself. Um, she is a woman who is herself heading to a lost eternity and according to Proverbs is a means of bringing others <coughs> into that with her too. Now of course there are women who are in a, a different situation from this woman. Some women are simply pushed into this kind of thing. That would not be the case 
in this kind of environment. It's very much her own doing and her own choice. That tells us, of course, that she is wealthy from the proceeds of iniquity, as so many people are. Wealthy from the proceeds of iniquity. But having the flask tells us something more important than that. It tells us that she went to the meal with an intention and with a purpose. Because why else would you take it with you? She took it for a reason. Either to do exactly what she did with it, to anoint him in some kind of way, or perhaps simply as a gift. Just as the other women were there, ministering for the needs of these people, perhaps she thought, well, this is a great gift to give, which will help them as they go from town to town and from city to city. But whether she meant to anoint him, or whether she meant to give a gift, the important thing is that even before she came to the meal, Christ had obviously become precious to her. And that's the critical point. She didn't come to this meal as the kind of woman she was. She came to this meal as a woman that was already changed. Now, nobody knows it yet. Only God knows it yet. But the fact is that she had changed. And... <coughs> I suppose the only thing that people could have noticed is that she wasn't seen where she used to be seen, or in the company of people that she used to be seen with. She wasn't doing what she was doing. The love of Christ can be secret for a time, but it can't stay secret forever. And in fact, it can't stay hidden at all. There, there may be some things that Christians find harder to do to show their faith, like for example sometimes coming forward to the Lord's table. But, but you can't keep Christian faith hidden. Secret discipleship just can't stay that way. And the Lord will see to it that it is brought out into the open. How can it be otherwise? A tree will be known by its fruits. A Christian must be recognized whenever they appear in public. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, of course, they were, they were trying to hold their Christian faith while being members of the Sanhedrin. And uh, they were trying to, to hide that by just voting in the right way. And they, they were voting in the right way because whenever there was a decision to seize the Lord or to capture him, they would dissent. They would not acquiesce to the decision to go chasing for Christ and to bring him captive. But these matters came to a head. The Lord didn't allow these matters to stay that way. The time came at the Lord's crucifixion when there was a decision to be made. They both knew that they had the means and the resources to take care of the Lord's body, to embalm it in spices, and they went and did that. They knew by doing that 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 was farewell to the Sanhedrin, it was farewell to their place, farewell to the admiration that they had amongst the people in Jerusalem, because they were identifying now with the followers of the hangman. But so be it, that's the way it is. Real faith and commitment to the Lord must come out one way or another. And it has to come out with this woman too. She's found something. Her life has changed and it's different, but, but she's got to let that be known. She, she can't just leave matters and just be a private Christian herself in her own house. Nobody can. The love of the Lord must reveal itself. <coughs> 
Now, we don't know, like I said, about her circumstances or how or why exactly she lived like this. Some people say that this kind of life can be people's choice, and you find some women say, well, this is how I choose to live, and they try to present a, a very happy face. Um, but you can always tell in their eyes, even before their lives disintegrate, which they inevitably do, it doesn't matter if you're in the upper classes of, of this kind of profession, and earning a, a whole load of money and living a, a quite comfortable life, their lives always disintegrate. But long before they do, their eyes tell you the truth. Their eyes tell you the truth. That their souls are empty. Empty and deeply and desperately sad. But the fact of the matter is that Christ can't be in Capernaum himself and be in a corner. Wherever he went, people went. People learned to follow and people learned to listen. We're told in the Word of God, as I mentioned several times over the last few weeks, that this is where he performed most of his miracles. This was, as Matthew says, his own city. This is where he preached great sermons like the Sermon on the Mount. He didn't do so much anywhere as he did in Capernaum. He never spoke so much anywhere, even in Jerusalem, as he did in Capernaum. She heard that. You'd have to live in a corner not to hear it. Maybe it was in a street. Maybe she knew Jairus or Jairus' daughter. Maybe she knew the demon-possessed man who was in Capernaum. Maybe she knew the centurion or the centurion servant. She knew somebody. All it takes is to know somebody who's a Christian. But just to hear himself, to see the feet of God's messenger in Capernaum. We think sometimes that the word of God can't touch people like this. Oh, I know we all know theologically it can happen. I mean, if I was to ask you, can God save people like this? You say, well, yes. But, you know, do we really believe it? Very often we would say, well, if you're really going to ask me, it's like the question God asked of Ezekiel, you know, when he showed him the valley of the dry bones, and he said, can these dry bones live? Ezekiel didn't say yes. He didn't say no either. He just said, you know. That's actually a way of saying, I can't bring myself to say yes, because it looks so hopeless. These dry bones look so hopeless, but you alone know. But God can touch the lives of people like this. He can touch the life of anyone in here, anyone in this town, anybody, irrespective of who and what they have been. He absolutely can. Who'd have thought this woman would come to the feast? But this woman came to the feast. She heard, obviously. She was convicted of her sin, and she comes to faith. But I'll tell you something, and it's something you can well understand, and that is that she probably lacks assurance. And she probably finds it difficult to believe that the Lord is actually willing to receive herself into his kingdom. Because that's what happens when we start to see our sins. When we really start to see them, we start to feel unworthy. And again, even as unconverted people, we could believe in theory that God can save anybody. But when you start to see your own sins, the blackness of them, the, how deeply woven they are into your being, the hellishness of them, and what they really deserve, well, then it's maybe not so straightforward to think that Christ can actually receive me. 
especially when the devil will bring before me that there is a part of scripture that says that there is a blasphemy against the Holy Spirit that the door can be closed upon you in this life and maybe just maybe the life that you've had or lived is a sign that the gospel is not for you actually for others maybe but not for you but again Love for Christ can't be quenched for him. He's speaking in a house nearby and she's got to go and hear him. And she takes a flask. She takes a flask. Now, as she makes her way to the Lord's feet and as the Lord speaks, she begins to cry. And that in itself is a beautiful thing. Because whatever her life or history, it shows that she is now so sensitive uh, to the gospel and to its wonder. She's so sensitive to the truth. She's so sensitive to the wonder of a, a saviour who is so holy but yet is able to receive someone like her. She's so sensitive to the fact that the message of life is just coming to somebody like her. She cries. She cries. Now that's a beautiful thing to see. It's a beautiful thing to see in any gathering of the Lord's people. When the Lord is speaking. When the word is being preached. But we can't help but notice that we see so little of it. We see so little of it. And why is that? I wonder why it is it's easy for us to say, for all of us to say that it's, well, because there's so little power attached to the proclamation of the word. Well, that may be so. But that would be an easy way, perhaps, to blame the preacher or even to blame the Holy Spirit. When at the end of the day it's ourselves that are not doing the crime. And really the fault must somehow come home to ourselves. That's where the real explanation lies. As the Lord says, if those who forgive little love little, then maybe we cry little because we don't feel we have all that much to be forgiven for really either. Our sense of the wonder of what Christ has done for us, coming down from his glory, taking our humiliation and our sin and our curse, doing all that for us and bringing us up to what he's prepared for us in glory, the wonder of that has gone the sense of unworthiness that you first felt when the Lord had to do with you, it's gone. It's as taken as a given now. Is that maybe why nothing really moves ourselves to cry? It's interesting that this woman cried. How many others cried? I don't know. But she did. She did. Is it a sign that we've lost sight of our sins? Is it a sign that we've lost sense of our real unworthiness? And is it a sign that we've lost a sense of the loveliness of Christ? Is it a sign, in other words, that your heart has gone cold? Now, as she cries at his feet, her tears unsurprisingly fall on his feet. 
and she can't help but notice that the Lord's feet haven't been washed. That obviously was a duty that Simon had, and he, for his own reasons, just didn't do it. It would have been courteous on his part to give perfume to the people who came after a journey, uh, to wash their feet, to cool them, to take away the dust. But he didn't do that. He was quite happy discussing theology, but not any of that. Which is always the sign of a Pharisee. But then she does something very unusual and very humbling. She unlooses her hair, which is her glory, and she stoops down to actually wipe the dirt away from Christ's feet with her hair. The tears have lubricated the feet already. Well, she takes her hair and she wipes away the dirt. That's not enough. She actually begins to kiss his feet. Now, at this point, you'd better believe that the conversation has stopped in the house. And you'd better believe, too, that at this point, all the locals know exactly who it is. But even that's not enough, because she takes out her alabaster flask, she breaks the seal, and she starts to pour this very costly ointment on the Lord's feet. Because she wants, as the scripture says, to anoint them. And this attention to the feet is indicating that these feet are precious to her. If it was simply a desire to clean the feet, it would be enough to do that humbly with the glory of her own hair. But she doesn't. The expensive perfume, she decides not to give it, not to do anything else with it, but to pour it on her feet. This woman is a Jew, and sometimes when people are born and brought up with the gospel, we can forget how rigorously they've been born and brought up with the gospel. She knew her scriptures herself since she was young. Most of us here have attended Sunday school. We probably attended these Sabbath schools for a long, long time. We learned passages of scripture. Um, committed them to memory, um, sang psalms since our childhood. We can't help but for these songs to be deeply woven into our hearts. And even sometimes, you know, when we choose to go far away from these things, it's amazing how they sit there. It's amazing how they sit there. And it's amazing how they just find their way back. Like the American soldier who was in prison in Vietnam. And he had long departed from the gospel. It, it was when he was in solitary confinement, day after day, month after month, that he started rummaging back into his childhood. And these stories and scriptures and songs started to come back. Things he didn't know, he knew. It was just the dark and the loneliness and the depression that pushed him back into the recesses of his own memory and found what wasn't there. Or let's just say, the Lord took them to the surface. They were there. And this woman knew the significance of messengers and their feet. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. Because when they have good news to bring, they, they run to bring it. And Isaiah, of course, sees the day of the church being upbuilt, the captivity coming back home, and special messengers being sent to the people saying, it's time for peace, it's time for salvation, 
It's time for rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, and even her watchmen shall see eye to eye at last when these walls are being rebuilt. And for her, how blessed these feet that had come into Capernaum. How blessed the God that had sent those feet to the town where she was living in misery. How blessed the feet that proclaimed the peace of God, the feet of the Messiah. Why not anoint them? Why not pour thousands of pounds of fragrance on his feet? Just because that's how precious he was to her. And when we see the preciousness of Christ, well, our glory means nothing. Our glory means nothing. She'll rub his feet with her hair. He brought her the good news, which is, of course, Christ himself. And of course, as was the case much later with Mary, everyone looking on didn't interpret it in the same way. Perhaps we can see it through the eyes of Simon first, and then see it through the eyes of Christ. Simon, in verse 39, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw it, he spoke to himself and said, This man, he were a prophet, would know who and what kind of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Now, if we're going to be honest, and we have to be honest, we always have to be honest. And if we're going to be honest, we have an element of sympathy with Simon. He knows her. He knows her reputation. And there's something about this that to him just doesn't look right. And there are many people there who are probably thinking the same. But that's because something's far wrong with them and they, they don't actually realize it's far wrong with them. There's something wrong with the way Simon sees the woman, the way he sees Christ, and fundamentally the way he sees himself. Let's start with a woman. She is a sinner, he says. Well, yes, that's right. But is that all she is? Is that all she is? Is she not a soul, too? Was she not originally made in the image of of God himself? Does she not actually still carry that image, fallen as she is? Is she not a soul capable of salvation and capable of restoration? Is she not a poor lost sheep that once belonged to the household of Israel? And could she not still be brought back in? And what's more, Simon, can you not see anything different about it anyway? Is this the woman you used to see walking around the streets? Does she look exactly the same? Is this the behaviour that you expected of her? Do you think she's doing this in some kind of way in connection with the profession that she was engaged in? If you, Simon, surely were a child of God yourself, surely you would have something other to say than why have anything to do with a woman like this who is a sinner? When a sinner is touching the Saviour like this, is that all, is that all you can see? Of course, that has something to do with the way he sees Christ, too. Why do we think he came? The Lord himself sometimes said that to them. Why do you think I came? Do you think I came to call the righteous or sinners to repentance? There are no righteous anyway. 
I've come to call you Nicodemus, righteous as you are. I've come to call you Simon, righteous as you are, because we are all sinners in need of repentance. But that's what we all are, of different hues, to different degrees, and of different kinds, but we are all sinners in need of salvation by the Lord Jesus Christ. And I have come to seek and to save that which was lost. But like I said, it's not just that his view of the woman is wrong, or the view that he has of Christ is wrong. All that has to do with the fact that the way he sees himself is wrong. And the way he sees his own relationship with God is fundamentally wrong. As the Lord puts it so graphically, he needs little forgiveness, and therefore he loves little. He needs little forgiveness in his own eyes, because really he'd be hard pushed to call himself a sinner. That's the fact of the matter. He'd be hard pushed to call himself a sinner. Sinners are other people. Oh, I'm sure he would say that I've got my infirmities. He would probably say that I, I have my infirmities. But a sinner, no, not me. All these things I have done from my youth. He knows how to tithe his mint and his cumin and his herbs. He knows how to do everything the way it should be done. And he knows that that masks other things in his life that aren't that nice and that tidy. Because a, a religious person outwardly will always use his external religion to mask his moral weakness and failure. But no, I'm not really a sinner. It's the way we all actually are by nature. We, we all see the defects in others. All we see in ourselves are just ah, infirmities, we like to call them. That's one of the good words for infirmities. Because actually, we're okay. And at the end of the day, God will not put the black cap on for any of us. He knows that we get the main things right. And we'll fall on the right side when the judgment comes. That's self-righteousness. And that, sad to say, is what Simon is full of. He's full of it. And that, friends, is a sure sign of being a stranger to the kingdom of God. No one really comes to Christ but people who have come to know that they're really sinners. Sinners deserving hell. And unless you've come to that conclusion, you haven't come to Christ. You may be fashionably a Christian, you may be a member of a church, but you have not come to Christ. Not until you see yourself as a hell-deserving sinner. Only they are saved by the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is the meaning of Christ's parable. When he said there was a certain creditor who had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii, the other 50, when they had nothing with which to repay, he forgave them both. Who's going to love most? Simon says, well, the one he forgave most. Christ doesn't mean by that that God is forgiving anybody little sins. That's not what he means. He's not talking about what God actually forgives, because what God actually forgives is always big sins, because there's not small sins. What Christ is talking about is people's perception of sin. 
those who, those who think that their sins are little are going to love God little because they just don't understand the gospel. But those who really understand what sin is and what forgiveness is, they're really going to love God. That's the point that he's making. In other words, he's not saying to Simon, you love God a little. He's saying to him, you don't love him at all. Because your perception of sin is a small thing. And there lies your problem. And it's only exacerbated and evidenced by the fact that when I came in here, you gave no kiss, no welcome. You didn't put any perfume on my head to refresh me. You didn't give me any water for my feet. It was just a matter of discussing the kingdom of God as equals. Oh, do you know who I am, Simon? Do you know who you are yourself? Do you know who God is? Do you know anything? You can talk with me here this afternoon, but do you know anything about what really matters? No, friends. Simon doesn't know the woman. He doesn't know Christ. He doesn't know himself. And he doesn't know God. It's not you. It's not you. And you're always misjudging and misunderstanding people and situations because you don't know yourself and you don't know God. Oh, if we knew ourselves and if we knew God and if we knew God coming to us in Christ, we would see everything differently. Everything. But how does the Lord see what the woman does? You'll remember later with Mary when Judas attacked Mary, everybody in the room attacked Mary until Christ defended her. Same here, he's quick to her defense. And you'll notice that everything he says is designed to assure her that all is well with her soul, that her sins are forgiven, and that she has a new life in Christ. And she shows that in her love. She shows it in her love. The root cause of it is in her faith, but she demonstrates it practically in her love. First of all, in her tears. Why is she crying? Just because her sins were so many. And she's been forgiven much. And as long as you feel that way, you're in a good place. He's had mercy on me. Her humility too. That shows um, her love. Her glory is at the feet of Christ. Um, these things always remind me of that. <clears throat> the saints in glory in the book of Revelation, when they arrive home, were told that when they're crowned, they cast their crowns at the feet of Christ. Uh, worthy art thou to receive uh, glory and honor and power. Uh, their crown at his feet. At his feet. He, he is worthy. It's in him that we have overcome. A woman's hair will always be her glory. That's maybe the reason why some women find it difficult to cover their heads in worship, like the Bible tells us to do. But covering her head wouldn't be much for her. She's actually prepared to unloose the whole thing and to rub it under her feet. No woman would do that, except a woman who just doesn't care anymore for her, her glory. And again, there's that too. It's not, it's not just her tears and her humility, but it's her willingness to witness. I mean, her willingness to be seen crying. 
her willingness to be nothing at the Lord's feet. We can be proud in a whole lot of wrong ways. Just in a whole lot of wrong ways. Maybe even if we cry in church, we don't want to be seen to be crying. Why? Why, why is that? Why is that? That we wouldn't want to be seen to be crying. No wonder the Lord says to her, your sins which are many are forgiven. And he tells Simon that her sins which are many, interestingly he was looking at the woman when he spoke, which is a very tender thing. He addressed Simon while looking at the woman. And he said that her sins, her sins uh, which are many, are forgiven for she loved much. Now we need to be a little careful there because on first reading and following the syntax or the logic in a certain way you would be, you would be inclined to say that that means um, that her sins are forgiven because she loved. That her love was the cause of the forgiveness. That's not what the Lord's actually saying. What he's saying is that her great love is the evidence of her forgiveness. We could paraphrase it like this uh, to bring that out. I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. And how do I know that? Because of her great love. Her great love is an evidence that she knows the greatness of her sin and she knows the wonder of forgiveness. And therefore, her love is so great. And then he, tur- he says to her directly, he's not just looking at her this time, but he speaks to her directly and he gives her this twofold assurance. Now, uh, it's a lovely thing when the Lord gives you assurance. And when the Lord gives it to you, take it. Take it. Your sins are forgiven, he says in verse 48. And he doesn't actually leave it there. He actually in verse 50 highlights why. Your faith, he says, has saved you. It's when you heard this gospel and you came to me in your heart and in your soul, that, he says, is when you were saved. And all you've done since is an expression of that. Because faith, as the Apostle says, works by love. Faith is set to work by love. And when faith is in your heart, love precipitates it into action. There's a lot that could be said about that, but that's enough for now. Go in peace. Same thing as he said to the woman caught in adultery. Go and sin no more, he said to her. He says to this woman, Uh, Go in peace. Uh, Your life has changed. It's a new life in Christ. Live it to my praise and to my glory in Capernaum, where the Lord has placed you. Let us pray. O eternal God, uh, we bless thy name on this new Sabbath morning for the rest that you bring to the weary soul and the fulfillment to souls that are lost and perishing without hope and without God in the world and how wonderful that the Lord of glory should stoop down to take hold of a woman 
in such a condition as this. But how wonderful too that you should stoop down and take hold upon ourselves. For none of us have reason to boast or to glory in what we are. Oh, help us to see our sins that we might really appreciate the Saviour who is Christ the Lord. Amen. <coughs> Let's uh, sing in conclusion in Psalm 40. And uh, the opening three stanzas of the psalm, which we know so well, um, again, one of these psalms that we probably learnt as children. I waited, although the lesson is one that takes a long time to learn, at least the first part. I waited for the Lord my God and patiently did bear. At length to me he did incline my voice and cry to hear. And that woman, in the quietness of her own chamber, put up her own voice and cried to Christ. And he took me from a fearful pit and from the miry clay. And on a rock he set my feet, establishing my way. He put a new song in my mouth, Oh God, to magnify. God even gives us new songs to sing. And many shall see it. Well, that's what happened in connection with this woman. Many saw it, and they came to fear, and on the Lord rely. Verses 1 to 3, let's start and sing. I